0: I joined the company and they were expanding in every direction. They would make these ridiculous announcements about what they were planning to do. They'd say, oh, we're going to build a 12,000 employee headquarters. Nothing really made sense. The founder sent out a letter and was like, we expanded way too quickly. We're out of money and now we need to fix it.
1: Hello fellow risk takers and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community we know that to win in investing you must take risk but to win big you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research and I'm here with featured guest Elliot Zagman. Elliot are you ready to rock? I'm ready man let's go. Yeah, we just had a great conversation before this, so we've both been uh, talking for a little bit, and I think we're both ready to rock. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Elliot Zagman is the co-host of the China Tech Investor Podcast and works as a PR and leadership consultant for Chinese tech founders and executives. He is a frequent commentator on issues facing China and its tech industry, and his work has been published by the Lowy Institute, Foreign Policy, sub China, and TechNode, as well as in Chinese on husho.com. Elliot, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life.
0: Okay, well, thanks for having me on, Andrew. I've been
1: working in
0: and around China and Asia for the last 10 years, basically, mostly in China. Uh, I'm, I'm based now in Bangkok, as you are. But I still am very focused on China in in my work and um, and am and, and back there very often. I am not a finance guy, even though I host the China Tech Investor podcast. My co-host James Hall is much better at digging into the numbers than I am. I've always been an an HR and PR guy. That's where I worked. That's the you know what I focus on. Even what I do right now is a lot more either PR or leadership consulting. So. But I am very interested in stocks and investing. Um, I'm, I'm a retail investor myself. I'm, I'm really into tech stocks in particular, but you know, when it comes to my story, I'm actually not gonna be sharing a story about a bad investment that I made. I'm gonna be sharing a story about a company that I joined that was probably a bad investment for other people, but was a, a very rewarding experience for me. But when it comes to, to my investment strategy, you know, I, I'm a pretty young guy, I'm still in my early 30s, basically my, my philosophy is always just, you know, work, save, invest, diversify, hold, right? So I have an account that I kind of play with that's, uh, you know, it's a relatively small percentage of my total uh, net worth. That's what I do when I, when I look at a lot of the, these Chinese tech stocks, it's kind of like dig into them, you know, look at kind of what the word on the street is, what my um, my Chinese friends and how they're using these companies, you know, what the reputations are, right? And kind of make some bets. And I, I think I, I kind of win more than I lose, but there, are, you can't really just look at the numbers when it comes to Chinese tech and a lot of Chinese companies, because one, the numbers are not always trustworthy Two, it, things just work differently in China. It's just a whole different world, right? So <laughs> what, that's actually what we're trying to do with our, with our podcast is we say, you know, is to seek truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. You know, there's a lot of hype around all this stuff, a lot of hype around China. And we're trying to figure out you know, what's real, what's not real, and what should investors know. So that's why you know, I, I would encourage your listeners to also listen to my podcast, because that's, that's what we try to look into.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, but let, let, me, let me get to my story here. Yep. So you know, I, I was working in China for, for a long time. And in 2016, I had run my own, started my own company with some colleagues of mine. And we were basically doing either some HR, leadership or talent development programs for Chinese companies that were going global. There were many of them at that time that were doing that, especially 2015 and 2016. There still are many that are doing that. But we got approached by some folks at this company called Leeco. So that's L-E and then E-C-O. In Chinese, it's called uh, Le Shi Wang. And it was kind of like the Netflix of China. And I, I had heard about them. I had some people who I trusted and respected and still trust and respect who had worked for them. And they reached out to me and they said, okay, well, we have uh, you know, a program that you know, we want you to put in place uh, you know, at, at our company. And they, they, they first wanted to hire me full time. I said, I have other work as well. Let's, uh, let's take this slowly and uh, you know, I'll work for you as a consultant. So I did that for, uh, for the first half of 2016. And what I noticed working with this company is they were trying to do everything. It was incredible. So just, you get there and it's just, you know, the office building was a, just a whirlwind, right? It was impossible to get a meeting room. You know, there's kind of a mess everywhere. Everyone's running it, you know, here and there. And the company had really gone from very little to very, very, very big, very quickly. So they started off as basically the Netflix of China. They were selling, they were doing, um you know, streaming video. And they'd done that for a long time. Then in, I believe, 2012, 2013, or 2014, they started going into basically making smart TVs, right? So, it was actually a pretty savvy business move to go to combine the streaming video with a smart TV, right? They they had success with that, and that makes sense, right? So, to kind of to start to create this hardware and content ecosystem. So, they had some success in that, and then their founder was this guy named Jia Yueting, uh, Y.T. Jia. I think he had these aspirations to become, you know, the next Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. I think he really admired and still admires and looks up to these guys. But he's from kind of a relatively, like, a modest background, you know, from this, this province of China that's kind of known for steel and, you know, coal mining. And so the way, that, the way that he came up was through this very kind of traditional traditional kinds of Chinese business that often are, are can be quite corrupt right that have to deal with like heavy industry real estate coal mining right these, these kind of things that are if in China these are very very dirty businesses there's a logic and there's a way of doing business around that that I think is that people who succeed in it kind of become socialized into but he also was very interested. He was a futurist, you know, he was very interested in the kind of the future and the, the possibilities, the potential of technology. And China at that time had said, okay, well, we want to have global tech champions. So he was like, okay, this is an opportunity for me to expand, to build this empire, and to raise lots and lots of money. So he got he had a very capable kind of PR and media team and just blew up. You know, he he went into smartphones, right? And he was gonna be the next Chinese the Chinese Apple, right? He went, to, he went into VR. He went into sports. Got, uh, they paid for all these sports contracts, music, cloud services. They opened up a 500-employee office in Silicon Valley, 100 employees in India. They went from a few thousand employees in 2014, to 7,000 in 2015, and by the end of 2016, they had 14,000 employees. And they were developing a car as well. So they were expanding in every direction, to the point where there's no way that you can you can hit these deadlines that they're trying to hit. And also, the question is, where's is the money come, coming from, right? So they would have these you know these big, huge kind of product announcements where you know the products that they were announcing were never you know they were they were pretty ho hum, right? But they were you know, I, I used their phones because we would get phones you know if we if we you know did a project or something with them. And, you know, their phones are perfectly fine. They were cheap, they, but they were selling these, these all below cost in order to get them in people's hands. And once they get them in people's hands, they can get them into their content ecosystem and make money mm-hmm. that way, right? So after consulting for the company, I ended up joining them full time. And I was very, very skeptical of the company, but there were some cool people that I had met that worked for the company and uh, some people that I, that I trusted and respected. And also, I figured, well, you know, I, these this is what I needed from the company for them to them to pay me and you know them you know whatever the package that they were giving me, and they were able to, to offer that. And then I also, you know, I don't have any children. You know, my wife also has a very good job. You know, it was it was uh, a situation that where I felt I could take that chance. So I figured it would either be a, a tremendous success or it would be a, a a horrible failure. And it was a horrible failure, but it was a very amusing one. And uh, so so. I joined the company and they were they, they just expanding in every direction and they would just they would make these ridiculous announcements about what they were planning to do. They'd say, Oh, we're we're planning, we're gonna build a twelve thousand employee headquarters in Silicon Valley. Right? how what where is this coming from? Like, just these nothing really made sense, right? That like how are you this this founder's clearly kind of had his head in the clouds? as far as what he wanted to accomplish. And he was this visionary that had, you know, this, I think in some ways, uh, an admirable vision. I don't think he had a clear understanding of how to do it. And, and also, I don't think anyone was able to tell him no. And any, anybody that he brought on that was able to tell him no, they probably left the company pretty quickly, right? What ended up happening is that his inner circle around him was all kind of these, um, these people who I, I don't think were all, you know, were pretty, particularly bad people, but they were people who were, you know, they were not, often they were not well-educated, uh, they didn't have very good English, and they, they they were not the kind of people that would be able to, you know, to really have a two-way discussion with this this founder. They were, I don't want to use any, they, they were yes yes people, right? So then what ends up happening, what you'll see with a lot of these companies, and I think it's quite common with Chinese companies, is that, you know, the most important thing for these CEOs is that they can find that they have people that they trust, right? So the skills of that person is secondary. So when they went to do their go to market in the US, they sent somebody who uh, you know I had worked with a bit, he he could barely speak a word of English to run their US office in Silicon Valley, right? So not only but he'd also almost never been in the United States, had not spent much time there, didn't understand the US market, and he was running their go to market. So you had you know obviously this this kind of this chaotic atmosphere they had this big, you know, enormous product launch or kind of to announce themselves to the US market uh, at the innovation hangar in, in San Francisco that was kind of, it was over the top, but also I think a lot of people just didn't understand it. Like, why are they doing such a big event? Three weeks after that, the founder sent out a letter and was like, we expanded way too quickly. We're out of money and now we need to fix it <laughs> and this the company from then you know they for the next year basically they spent the next year laying people off closing offices and this entire thing that he had built he built it basically within a year to you know 14,000 people offices all over the world you know all these different verticals of business and then it all collapsed it was kind of the supernova Right, this you know, this star that just goes from you know little to massive to to collapse, and um, yeah, I, I had. So did the, it
1: turn I, into a black hole where everything got sucked in and it disappeared, or was there a core left that he was able to get it you know focus on? Or?
0: Uh, well, what happened? What he was very interesting. So you said we said that he went to they launched a car. Actually, what happened is he also invested in a U.S. electric vehicle business called Faraday Future. And they're still trying to tread water. Um, uh, when he made for his company, he so he invested in Faraday Future. Actually, what he ended up doing is is using his investment to get Faraday Future engineers to design the eco car that he wanted to build, um, which never obviously never ended up getting built. But also was you know there was a lot of kind of ethical question you know, questions around there. Um, but what he had left and remaining at that point by the time that 2017 rolled around was he still had invested in this electric vehicle company the electric vehicle company is based in the US he still is, is kind of running it but they're kind of they seem to be on their last leg every time that they have an investor who tries to um was interested in investing in a company the investors terms are that this guy step away he will not step away still
1: the company with people who are loyal to him what about his? Uh, the, the original business of the streaming and all that, did he have to let go of all that in China? Yeah, that,
0: that basically had to let go of that. Well, he can't really come back to China right. because he's on a credit blacklist. Um, he'll, he'll either be arrested or he'll be, you know, he, he owes so many people money in China that he can't,
1: he's, he's in the U.S. And, uh, yeah. So may, maybe we should try to wrap it up by asking you, what did you learn from this experience?
0: <laughs> well, there's a few things that I learned. Well, one is just, first of all, to, like, I just started asking questions, like, how the hell does this happen? Like, this is obviously, there's, this is not going to work from the very beginning. Like, you cannot grow this quickly into this many areas of, areas of business with, you know, just you, you just can't, this, it was impossible from the very beginning. Why did they do that in the first place? But the more that I kind of kept asking questions, there were a lot of things that I learned about kind of the Chinese tech ecosystem and the Chinese tech in the Chinese economy that make it somewhat make sense. Right. So one is the way that Chinese banks have dealt out credit right? in that they are they will they will lend and they will lend very loosely to companies that are aligned with kind of the, the government or the party initiatives. So basically what this guy was saying was all right well you know this is these are the areas where one we have venture capitals venture capital firms that are willing that are kind of that are investing in these areas right now two we have this is what the communist party wants to promote so uh, let's go into there as well right and we can get access to capital
1: so it's right? po- policy lending government yeah basically lending. okay right so free and, money
0: right and second is like is that for a lot of the people who were in charge of the money a lot of, and a lot of that, that wealth in China, they didn't really understand technology and the tech, the tech business, right? So a lot of the excuses that were given in order to get money is like, oh, well, this is just how tech businesses operate. This is just how tech companies operate, right? And, and he ended up getting a, an, an, you know, getting a lot of funding basically through smoke and mirrors that way and good um, you know, making good videos, having good kind of uh, you know, display products with nothing really behind it. And if you just looked at it from the outside, it would still, it, and just looked at the headlines, you know, it would seem quite appealing. Um, so, uh, what well, what I learned here is just kind of to look under the hood a little bit when it comes to these companies, a- especially I think in China. You know, you we, in the U.S. you have the stories of like Theranos, right? You know, this uh, that um, blood testing company that became worth eight billion dollars, but really was a complete sham. But in, in China, you have this happening. You know, even more so. Theranos sounds like something that would happen in China.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Let me summarize a little bit about what I take away from the story and uh, let me know if I missed anything. One of the themes that it's kind of interesting that you mentioned is, you know, how this guy admired American business leaders like Jobs and Musk and others. And I think one of the things for my American listeners, I would like to say is that, you know, I don't know how to say this, but China doesn't have to be our enemy. In fact, there's a lot of things that Chinese people admire about America. And in fact, a lot of the transformation that happened in China came because they implemented the principles of free market and stuff like that. It's a little bit sad to watch how politicians try to line up Americans kind of against China. So yeah, first- yeah, yeah. I,
0: I, th- I think that, that what I would add to that is like, I don't think that this guy's vision was something that, and that, w- that was, I think his vision was something that was very good. Right. Yep. Um, and, and I think that you, what you will see, you see this in a, in a lot of cases with China, is that, like, I don't think anyone's idea, very often their their vision of the world is not particularly, you know, uh, is, is not something that is, that is malicious, I, I, I yep. would say. Yep. But I think in a lot of ways, like we would see, like we saw with this guy, is that the ways in which that they will get there, oftentimes a lot of people get hurt in the process. A lot of yep. people... Yep. You know, they a lot of people will get cheated in the process. And I think yep. that's the bigger issue when it comes to Chinese companies and, yep. and China. Is so is what are the means that are taken in order to to, to
1: get there. Goals. Yeah. Um the other part of that is the idea of don't be seduced by diversified businesses like Apple or Microsoft or you know, businesses that have been growing and, and expanding into different areas. Uh, first of all, they probably have a really strong core. And then they do something like Amazon Web Services as an example and they built into it you know, slowly. So I think from for the managers out there or the owners and the entrepreneurs out there, be careful of over-diversifying because you'll lose focus. Uh, another thing that that I kind of get from this is that, and I believe that this is the case, basically when money is available freely and at a low cost, what you find is malinvestment. Yeah, un- yes, exactly. Un- undisciplined investment. And in fact, one of the interesting pieces of research I was recently doing was looking at the, the asset utilization of the American companies. And what you find is that, in fact, they've come down significantly over the last 10 to 20 years. In other words, they're generating less revenue for the assets that they have in place. And the point is, is that when interest rates go so low, um, what you're finding is that the investments that, that wouldn't have looked attractive when your interest rate was at 10%, now, all of a sudden, if your interest rate is at four or five, all of a sudden, you have investments that look attractive. But as soon as the interest rates go up, all of a sudden, you're caught in a squeeze on those investments. So the point is is that what's happening not only in the world and in America, but also in China, is that there's so much money uh, being poured into the industry that you can't help but have this type of situation. And I'd say the other last thing that I would mention is the idea of yes men and yes women. And you know, part of the reason why, you know, one of the benefits of a developed company is that they have a board of directors. And as I like to think of it, um, like in our coffee business with my best friend Dale, he's a CEO and his job is to grow that damn company, grow, grow, grow. And I consider my role a little bit more as the chairman or as a director, and my focus is on risk and what are the risks to this growth and how do we protect this company over time? Now, of course, you want a CEO that's thinking of risk and growth, but the point is, is that you know, having yes men either uh, in management or at the board level you know, can, can turn out to be a real disaster. And that's, We see the great people that are surrounding some of the best businesses out there and they're real serious professionals that aren't afraid to stand up to the CEO and say no, whether it's the development of the iPad or or the iPhone or whatever to say, no, this is the way we've got to go, you know, so that getting people that aren't just yes men is valuable. So those are my takeaways.
0: I I think there's a few things I'd like to add here. One is, is I think that you you mentioned that, you know, a lot of these, uh, these Chinese, these Chinese business leaders like like YCJ, you know, they, you know, look up to Jobs, Musk, but I, I think it can be People like Jobs and Musk, they're the exception, they're not the rule, right? They're the exception that proves the rule. And if you look at Jobs in particular, a lot of these job stories about his, him being, you know, so determined and such an asshole, this is what got him fired from the company in the first place, right? Back in the 1980s. And if you look at his most successful years, you know, obviously that that drive, that vision was something that really, you know, made him successful, but... It wasn't until he kind of learned to tone himself down, to be a little more empathetic, to be a little to listen to others a little bit more, that when he came back to Apple, he had his most successful years. So he was able to to not necessarily get a, to not you know shed his, his determination and his vision, but to to learn how to take feedback and to learn how to kind of channel that determination, that vision a little bit more. And then I, I think what, what you mentioned, kind of your role in your business, I think that that two great examples of that. One uh, is um. Is Microsoft? When Microsoft started off, and you know, you look at people like Steve Ballmer or Paul Allen in comparison with Bill Gates, right? You know, Bill Bill Gates in a lot of those early years was kind of the uh, the bullshit builder. That you know, every time that Paul Allen or Ballmer would have you know some big idea, he'd be like, "Well, you know, let's look at this and look and if it got past Bill, they know it was a good enough job." There are people who you know, if you look at that comparison of Jobs and Bill Gates. You know, I think that there are a lot of people that will be like, yeah, especially the, you know, the Apple fans, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, Bill Gates is everything that's wrong with technology. Right? Maybe, but Bill Gates is also a lot of what's right about Microsoft as a business. Right? And secondly, I think you can also look at, in China, you can look at Alibaba. Jack Ma, unchecked, would be somebody, somebody like YP Jha. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wants to go into everything. He has his head in the clouds a lot more often. But he also has very, very helpful people around him, people like Daniel John, people like Joe Tsai, people like Lucy Punk, who are our operators. They are bullshit filters in a lot of ways. They make sure that that company runs. So I think that the biggest lesson I think you got on it here is like when cash is loose and when I think it's very easy during, period, during these bubble periods for somebody to paint a picture and to get a lot of people on board. Yep. And I just think what, what I have found is just, you know, healthy skepticism is super important. You know, our, our, the slogan for our podcast is, you know, to seek truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. And that's a, a saying from Deng Xiaoping that when, that you know, after Mao died and Deng instituted the reform and opening up, you now before there was this very, very heavy kind of like Marxist ideology in China that, you know, created the, the cultural Revolution. Um, you know, this period of just, you know, terrible chaos in China. And and what coming out of that, Deng Xiaoping said, up okay, we're gonna seek truth from facts. We're gonna shush sure. Shush we're gonna so which was just to say, well let's let's try to look at things how they really are. Let's try to put you mean facts that. aren't truth?
1: <laughs> you seek truth from facts, right? Yeah, I mean but, like a lot of people would think that facts are truth, but what this is saying is that first what you think is a fact may not be actually a fact and the second thing is that developing some kind of truth from that is what's really valuable or some meaning from that so
0: exactly yeah. i really really like that term because it is yeah. you know a lot of times you know facts can be contradictory to each other you know yep. and you know things are are complex and sometimes you just have to make the you know the best decision in, in each situation. I, I just think that that's a really, you know, it's, it's such a, it, it's a, it's a legacy in China um, that I just think is really, it's really helpful. And it's, it's something that I think, you know, when, with a lot of the leaders that I work with and a lot of what I find to be the, you know, the best, the best Chinese business leaders, you know, that, that's kind of a spirit that remains with a lot got of them. It, got and it, The spirit of pragmatism and, and flexibility and, and just trying to look at the numbers and the facts and try to figure out, okay, what's the best decision making?
1: Great. City? All right, last question. Sure. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: Oy, 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 oy. Well, <laughs> what, you know, like I, I write a lot about companies, you know, Chinese tech companies and companies like Huawei. And now I, I don't know how much I can do. I'm very worried about kind of the direction of U.S. and Chinese technology ecosystems and, and what we seek to be kind of as decoupling. And... I am hoping to continue to, like, add my voice to that conversation. You know, I, I write a lot about this topic. To seek truth from facts, right? <laughs> and to, um, you know, to, to offer a clear analysis of what's happening and allow my readers and my listeners to, um, you know, to be able to get a, a clear picture of the the broader situation and one that is um, is honest and one that is, you know, trying to, uh, that is respectful and in service of, of the truth and uh, with, with respect to all the, the people involved.
1: Great. All right. Well, that's we need more of that. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Elliot, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Uh, My parting word? Seek truth from fact. There you go. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in to the China Tech Investor Podcast, where they seek truth from facts. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.